0: This is banished and I'm Amna Khalid. Over the past 5 years or so, free speech has become sus as my 9-year-old would say. Like so many other topics, such as critical race theory and climate change, free speech has joined the culture wars. Fox News, Breitbart and other right-wing media have embraced the free speech mantle arguing that liberals and progressives who dominate higher education are silencing conservative voices. For many Republicans, free speech means having the right to express an opinion, regardless of how unfounded and unsubstantiated it may be. As a consequence, many on the left now view free speech as a right-wing ideal. I've been wanting to talk about free speech with someone who brings a historical perspective to bear on it. And who better than Jakob Mishengama, a Danish lawyer, human rights advocate, and author of Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media, which is Hot, hot, hot of the press, newly published by Basic Books. I started our conversation by asking Mishangama what he would say to those liberals and progressives who view free speech as merely a tool of the powerful to marginalize minority voices and to keep them from having a seat at the table.
1: I would say that free speech might be the most powerful engine of human equality ever invented by human beings. By that, I mean that it is... Free speech and sort of the broader concept of tolerance are the only values that allow the powerless to speak up against the powerful with no consequences. And I understand the impetus wanting to change power relations. In my view, if you limit free speech, that means, first of all, that you have the power. So if you have the power to restrict free speech, either you have the democratic votes needed to limit free speech through laws, or you have authoritarian power to impose free speech restrictions on others. So you're probably not vulnerable. But more fundamentally, I think that censorship does not equalize power relationships. It ultimately inverts them. And why do I say that? Well, take an example of the early Christians So the early Christians were on and off persecuted by the Roman Empire, but when Christianity becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire, Christians persecute not only pagans, but heretical Christians. So suddenly, the underdogs are now sat on the throne and then use their power to persecute others. So that's not an equalizing. That is an inversion of power relationship. You could say the same with socialism. Take Karl Marx, for instance. He's hounded around uh, Europe and writes actually quite eloquently against censorship. Socialists and Marxists are heavily censored. And then what happens when, you know, after the Russian Revolution, when the Bolsheviks assume power in Russia? well, the first thing they do is to abolish free speech, and they have this internal discussion whether they shall uphold uh, censorship, and Lenin is absolutely crystal clear. There's no way he's going to give free speech back to the enemies of the people. (laughs) And the people are then identified with whatever ideas that Lenin and his party advance. And then I I would say you could take a look at antebellum America, where take a state like Virginia. Virginia was the first state that in 1776 adopted a declaration of rights that protected press freedom. But then, in 1835 or 1836, after a campaign by abolitionists targeting the South, Virginia adopted this really sweeping law that cracked down on abolitionist publications with draconian punishments. There were other Southern states where abolitionist literature was punishable by death, and I think you know both slavery, but also Jim Crow laws, were entrenched through the use of censorship. Whereas abolitionists like Frederick Douglass and later campaigners for racial equality like Ida B. Wells, and later on in the the civil rights movement, John Lewis, for instance, depended on free speech. And actually, one of the reasons why free speech is so strongly protected legally in the US today is because the civil rights movement expanded the First Amendment with a number of landmark victories at the Supreme Court. You know, many Americans think that Oh, the First Amendment was sort of our birthright, and it was always, we always protected free speech absolutism, but that is very, very wrong. Long into the uh, 20th century, the First Amendment offered a very different level of protection than it does now. And, you know, if you go into the first half of the 20th century, you could go to prison for 10 or 20 years if you peacefully opposed American involvement in World War I or advanced sort of socialist policies. So to me, free speech has really been indispensable for minorities and the disenfranchised and the powerless, whereas censorship has always been the go-to tool of oppression. And I think that is true up until this day. So you can't really, in my opinion, create equality through censorship.
0: So you talk about other societies, and I actually would love for you to expand a little bit because it really helps debunk some notions about Islamic societies that people today hold, which is like the scope of freedom of speech in Islamic societies prior to the kind of reign of orthodoxy that then grips them. So I'm really talking about the 8th, ninth, 10th centuries that you expand upon And also, you know, how much of the production of knowledge and advancement and thinking was the result of cross-pollination between different cultures and societies, the roles that Arabic scholars played in preserving Greek philosophy and texts and translating them? Could you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I thought it was really interesting to look into what happened in the Abbasid Caliphate and adjacent territories, because there was... Historians generally tend to hate the term golden age, but I'm going to use it anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of a golden age where basically almost all secular Greek works on philosophy and, and medicine and science were translated by this Arabic translation movement. It would be wrong to say that during the caliphate there was free speech or freedom of conscience, but there was a much wider scope for free thought than there was in contemporary medieval Europe, for instance, and you had some great philosophers who would influence immensely later Western philosophers. But you also had some of the very first free thinkers, like Razi, for instance, who articulate ideas that come stumblingly close to arguing for free speech, and why the close-mindedness of religious orthodoxy is something to be avoided, and why it's important to be able to question everything. These are thoughts being articulated much, much earlier than when such thoughts would be articulated in in Western Europe. And then, unfortunately, as you alluded to, there's a tendency towards orthodoxy. So, this development, there's still a lot of Islamic scholarship and philosophy that goes on, but you could say the red lines become much more narrow. So, basically, you're not allowed to the same degree to sort of question specific orthodoxies of Islam that previous thinkers had done. But I think that's an incredibly important part of the, the history of free speech.
0: You spoke about, and, and you developed this in your book as well, and I think this speaks to why people have such a oppositional understanding of what free speech does and means, which is the elitist conception of free speech versus the non-elitist conception of free speech. I think that distinction is worthwhile precisely because it shows how it can be Weaponized in interesting ways, but actually means something very different when it's being weaponized by the elite. So, can you expand and explain what that distinction is?
1: Yeah, so to me, the egalitarian conception of free speech originates in Athens, even though its egalitarian nature, you know, not by our modern standards, yes. but <laughs> given that only freeborn male citizens could participate in in the assembly. But nonetheless, you know, you had Isagoria, which was equality of speech. So in, in principle, at least every freeborn male could participate in the political decision-making in the discussion and voting on laws. And then you had the broader cultural concept of parrhesia, which means something like uninhibited or fearless speech, which characterized Athenian public life, where things could be discussed openly. And you could have people like Plato and Aristotle, who advanced philosophies that were quite critical of the Athenian democracy, but they could do so. Of course, there were limits, as Socrates found out. So it was not free speech absolutism, but it was a culture, I would say, of free speech. And then I contrast that with an elitist free speech tradition, which I find in in Rome, specifically in the Roman Republic, where, for instance, in the assemblies, it would be elite magistrates that addressed these assemblies, whereas the participants could not speak directly. And so it was basically a learned elite, like senators like Cicero, who were seen as those who exercised free speech and who were sort of very much opposed to the egalitarian democratic ideals of Athens, which they saw as the rule of the mob. And those two traditions, I think, have clashed. They've morphed along with different technological developments, uh, political developments, and so on. But I think they're still with us today. So you see it, for instance, when it comes to social media, where, interestingly, traditional media newspapers tend to be very, very critical of social media, sometimes even in favor of censorship of social media, because what happens is that every time the public sphere is democratized and sort of new, previously voiceless groups are given direct access, that upends the role of institutional gatekeepers. And it tends also to breed a lot of fear about the consequences of the unwashed mob having direct access to spreading ideas that go against the foundational values.
0: You point out that this kind of tension has always been there when new media comes in. When the printing press came in, there was panic about how wide and what kinds of ideas could be circulated. Of course, with the World Wide Web, there was this panic as well, even though the idea was that this will democratize information. But in our last um, five, six years or so, there's been a lot of anxiety around fake news and misinformation being spread, deliberately being spread. And that, I think, for many people today has become perhaps one reason why they can get behind limiting free speech, right? They can be like, actually, someone needs to control this, because this has real consequences, both in terms of politics, as we have seen, also in terms of public health concerns, as we are seeing right now. And in this atmosphere, add to it the fact that tech giants have taken it upon themselves to decide who to censor. And that is another wrinkle in this entire argument. So you seem to have a very clear position on this. And that's kind of refreshing because I think very few people tackle the issue of free speech in the current digital information environment. You're also very clear that you're aware of negative consequences. So how do you square that circle?
1: I don't know if I do square it. In my opinion, free speech is an experiment and there's no guarantee that the outcome will always be beneficial to everyone or even the majority. But, you know, looking back at 2,500 years of history, my conclusion is that the experiment has been beneficial, uh, noble, and the benefits have vastly outweighed the negative parts. But if you were living... At the time of upheaval in Europe with the Reformation, where sort of the Reformation had been helped by the printing press, you know, Martin Luther was, it was like he had 200 million followers on Twitter and the Catholic Church had 5,000. And it (laughs) created a lot of disruption and ultimately warfare and persecution. So if you were looking at it at that time, you might say, well, the printing press has not been a very good idea, has it? Before we knew there was religious and political authority we knew our place uh, and there were clever people who could set limits on what could be said and now people can spread all these tracts and pamphlets and even uh, let the poor people get funny ideas about how to interpret the bible for themselves this is crazy this is going to hell but then fast forward to our time and i think we're pretty generous that <laughs> in fact the printing press was invented and we tend to think that it was worth the price for all that disruption that went on. You know, for all the disruption of our digital age, it's pretty mild stuff, at least in Western Europe, compared to what went before. (laughs) But then, of course, I mean, you just have some built-in problems when you want to censor, for instance, as in who gets to decide. And when we talk about censorship at scale, unless you're sort of the Chinese government, which has committed itself to absolute censorship, then it becomes very, very difficult for democracies today in the digital age to want to control information, to sort of reimpose top-down control of information, of continuing sort of adherence to the elitist free speech model, because it just requires increasingly draconian solutions. But that does not mean that I don't see problems with the tech giants. I just think that the solutions, for instance, that we see in Europe, where governments Demand that these tech giants remove illegal content makes things worse. It actually gives them more power, not less power. So, I don't have a a perfect solution to this. I think the solution is likely partly technological. So, I would like to see perhaps a more decentralized social media environment. I think when I look at the history of free speech, free speech tends to be most safe, if you like, or to thrive better when there's decentralized authority rather than sort of centralized authority over the spread and control of information one element we should think about now is that users should have much more control over the kind of information that they're being confronted with so one of the problems today if you have a global platform like Facebook which has something like 2.7 billion users then you know there's a huge difference between what people in various parts of the world think should be the red line And so ultimately, Facebook will have to decide on something which will be unsatisfactory to billions of other people. So you and I might have different sensibilities when it comes to offense, because it's human nature to be offended by things. There's nothing wrong with being offended. If I was very concerned about misogyny, for instance, then I might say, well, I think there are certain words that I don't want to be confronted with because they offend my sensibilities of gender equality. But they might still be words and discussions that others want to engage with. Maybe even feminists who said, well, I want to be subjected to these words because I want to fight back. So that might be a women's rights group that develop a filter which is easily integrated with a tech platform that I can then tackle on and off. It could be the same with Islamophobia, for instance. So if you ask the Prime Minister of Pakistan to define Islamophobia, it's going to be a pretty broad definition <laughs> of Islamophobia. And so if you feel easily provoked about criticism or mockery of Islam, then you could tackle on such a filter, whereas others who like to watch irreverent French cartoons can do so. So again, it's not centralized as censorship. I think that is part of the solution
0: that's novel. That's not in your book. (laughs) This toggling bit is kind of new. I haven't seen this. And it's an interesting proposal. I'm not entirely sure what I make of it, but it's certainly interesting. I haven't heard anything like this before.
1: But as long as we have centralized platforms, then you could also say, well, we have international human rights standards. So let's have Facebook and Twitter and YouTube inform their terms of service and their content moderation policies by international human rights standards. That sets a pretty high bar, and then there's going to be lots of content that offends all kinds of people, but then let them, to the extent possible, figure that out for themselves rather than having this race to the gutter where different interest groups try to influence Facebook to say, oh, you got to adopt a definition of anti-Semitism that includes criticism of Israel, for instance. So I think that's a more Solomonic (laughs) solution, but any solution which has to sort of look at content moderation at scale is going to be extremely complex, involve a lot of trade-offs and basically be sort of a constantly tinkering process. So I don't have the perfect solution, unfortunately.
0: Perhaps not in terms of what can technically be done for this, but I I liked what you had to propose towards the end of your book, which is more about our attitude in terms of how we approach social media. And if you'll permit me, I'm going to quote, you say, developing a more detached attitude to the constant background noise of social media, rather than treating each problematic tweet or piece of content as a potential threat to democracy, or specific groups, may also help to develop a healthier information ecosystem. And that, I think, is something that we can all kind of work on. doesn't require tech giants to weigh in there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we're still sort of almost obsessed with social media, even though it's been around for a while now. And, you know, this detached attitude to insults and offensive ideas I was inspired by Stoic philosophy about how to treat insults and being sort of detached from rather than sort of identifying with insults. So I think there are some ancient stoic uh, ideas that we can use in our hypermodern digital age. And I think if we as a society started treating, you know, oh, someone wrote something stupid on Twitter, who cares, rather than melting down over what someone wrote, I think that would also help to diffuse much of the outrage and controversy that is being endlessly generated on social media
0: many people in the US look to hate speech laws in Europe as a model to follow. And you have a very clear position. I'm going to read from your book again. You say, European laws against hatred and offense have also undergone scope creep as ever more groups have successfully lobbied for the recognition and respect thought to follow from the protected status. However, This development has inadvertently led to situations where some of the marginalized groups supposed to benefit from hate speech laws have been targeted and pitted against each other. I think this is a really important point that you're making, especially to address claims that Europe somehow has it figured out when it comes to policing of speech. And I'd like you to dwell on this and elaborate it a little bit for our listeners.
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, it goes without saying that the more specific groups are protected against hate speech, the bigger the likelihood that some of these groups are going to clash. And so you see it, for instance, with LGBT versus religious conservatives. So you've had situations where LGBT persons or organizations have gone after religious conservatives who hold views that the LGBT Movement find hateful, but then you've also seen the other way around, where LGBT persons have said something about religious groups, and then religious groups have been able to use laws to shut them up. And now we see a movement towards hate speech laws, including uh, categories like gender identity, gender expression, and also moving into the territory of misogyny. And then what you are likely to see is a conflict between radical feminists and trans women so you'll see that play out and then it'll suddenly be the police and courts who have to take sides and determine who's more worthy of protection in these debates it's really interesting to see france for instance france cracks down on hate speech quite a bit mm-hmm. but it also frequently targets minorities so last year the french government administratively banned this organization which worked against discrimination of muslims and said that they were Engaged in apology of terrorism, in Islamism, and and anti-Semitism, and actually, if you go to the UK, the very first person who was convicted for sort of hate speech when hate speech law was introduced in the sixties was a black man, was a, a black radical, and initially, what happened was that a number of black people were convicted, whereas sort of powerful white politicians were not convicted. So, and that actually created more more resentment, and also, you know. Is Europe doing a lot better when it comes to hate crimes than the U.S., for instance? Uh, You know, there's a lot of things you can criticize uh, in the U.S., but are Jews more secure on the streets of Germany than on the streets of New York? I'm not sure. And even if, you know, we saw this horrific incident with the British Muslim holding hostages in a synagogue Mm -hmm. in the U.S., my impression is that the relationship between Muslims and Jews in the U.S. is less complicated. Than it is uh, in Europe, where unfortunately it is often highly charged. So I don't know that these laws have achieved the results that they want. It's really interesting. For instance, the European Commission, the executive arm of the European Union, wants to make hate speech an EU crime. So basically, the Commission can define what hate speech should mean across all 27 member states and also set sort of minimum punishments. And they point to an increase in online anti-Semitism in France and Germany. But if you look at the law in Germany and France, they have zero tolerance policies when it comes to anti-Semitism. So they ban Holocaust denial. Mm -hmm. You can't even sarcastically use Nazi symbols in Germany to criticize the government of being supposedly racist. If you're Mm -hmm. a French comedian who engages in anti-Semitism, you'll be convicted. In France, they, until the European Court of Human Rights, told them this was a violation of free speech, banned these boycott movements, BDS, uh, BDS movements yeah. that, want, yeah, that wants to boycott Israel as being anti-Semitic hate speech. So if they already have in place these laws that are being severely enforced and they still see a rise in online anti-Semitism, why is it that they think that new and tougher laws will do the trick? And how far are we willing to sacrifice free speech? <laughs> that's well, that's that, the that. question,
0: right? And I think once you, you start kind of chipping away at it, in the end, you'll be left with nothing.
1: If the logic is that free speech is sort of an expendable value and that, you know, until there's no longer uh, anti-Semitism or racism in the public sphere, uh, we should limit it, then you ultimately could go very, very far indeed in limiting free speech.
0: Your book, you know, among other things, you know, the content, the richness is so incredibly readable. I have to say, as an academic who's used to reading really stilted academic writing, which is tough to get through, this one was (laughs) such a pleasure to read. It was such a breeze. I actually had to remind myself that I was reading it for work and not just for pleasure. So I do highly recommend it. Jakob, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I think your book is an incredible We need it.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. It was a real uh, pleasure and a privilege to be on. I hope that we will meet again, whether uh, in the virtual or physical world.
0: Jakob Mishengama is the author of Free Speech, a history from Socrates to social media. He drew a distinction earlier between what he calls an egalitarian model of free speech, ancient Greece, and an elitist model, ancient Rome. I asked him to give me a more modern example of the elitist model, whereby the group with power enjoys unfettered free speech, while others are more restricted. Here, as a postscript, is what he said.
1: Germany is very much a key example of a state where elitist free speech has been the norm. So in the 1870s and 80s, for instance, during Bismarck, the socialist and social democrats were utterly repressed. So any... Socialist newspapers or the like were banned. Socialist journalists were imprisoned. The Weimar Republic was much more open to free speech and had constitutional protections of it, but it still had emergency laws and, most fatally, an emergency clause in its constitution, I believe it's Article 48, that was supposed to protect democracy, which ultimately ended up being used by the Nazis to dismantle the very democracy it was supposed to protect. And I think if you look at the laws that were being adopted more and more desperately by Weimar authorities, they go much, much further than we would be comfortable with in a democracy today. So for instance, there were laws in the Weimar Republic that said that the government could administratively ban a newspaper if they thought it was publishing false information or were sort of saying things that went against the state or, or public official now imagine the outcry if you know boris johnson said oh you know i'm going to we're going to shut down the guardian uh, because <laughs> i don't like the way they covered Although
0: many reasons for an outcry against boris johnson <laughs> right now but yes that would exactly. be an additional one <laughs> you no know, he, he
1: might not like the coverage of his partying the <laughs> street hitler was banned from from speaking publicly Yusuf Goebbels founded a newspaper called Der Angriff, which was sort of trolling Jews. And he bragged that he was the most frequently censored newspaper in Weimar, Germany. Of course, the radio was heavily censored, so Nazis and communists could not go on air. It was basically pro-government broadcasts. And I think the flip side of that was that basically, initially, the Nazis could use the existing laws and institutions to their benefit. So even before the Reichstag fire, I believe on February 4th, they basically just tightened existing laws to basically go after fake news. And and there's this quote by Goebbels who says that now bans are going to pop like crazy and all the Jewish newspapers who gave us so much grief are going to disappear from the streets of Berlin. And then, of course, with the Reichstag fire, then comes the, the Reichstag fire decree where the Nazis are able to use the Weimar Constitution to suspend civil liberties, including freedom of the press, freedom of association, and so on. And then in the span of something like six months, they've created a totalitarian one-party state. I do not argue that if the Weimar Republic had been completely laissez-faire on free speech, Nazism would not have triumphed. That is not my argument. I think the reasons why things happened the way they did are very complex. And I don't think free speech is the only or, or even the most important explanation. But I think it poses a problem to those who say that the lessons of the totalitarian takeover of Germany is that you have to commit to militant democracy, in the words of Karl Löwenstein. Because to me, at least, the history doesn't bear that out. And again, I'm not saying that a more pro-free speech policy would have led to a different result, and you could, of course, also argue that the Weimar Republic should have gone even further. But to me, <laughs> the Weimar Republic was really tough on words, but not very tough on action. So they let uh, these armed, uniformed hooligans walk around, march around the streets, and pick fights, and then they close down uh, newspapers. To me, I you know I'd focus on the other way around, perhaps, and of course the Weimar courts were were hopelessly biased towards right-wing movements. And, and you know, Hitler obviously should have been sent to prison for a very, very long time after, after the putsch, because that had nothing to do with free speech. That was a violent attempt to overthrow the government. And the fact that he got away with a slap on the wrist was suicidal.
0: I see that you're being very careful in making sure that you're not saying that had there been complete freedom of speech, there would have been no Holocaust. Of course, we can't know and we can't do history by counterfactuals. But I think the important point that you make is precisely those censorship laws were used by the Nazi regime to crack down in ways that were discriminatory and that actually facilitated their suppression of the Jews. And I think that point is made really well in your work.
1: And legitimize them also because, you know, if you basically are using the same matrix that has been molded by those that were in power before you, then the criticism is less stinging. And Hitler says, so, you know, there's this speech by Otto Wells, a social democratic politician who protests against the Enabling Act, and and Hitler says, you talk about free speech, but when you were in power, you know, we were banned, I was banned, and that went on for years. Now, of course, that is completely insincere on the part of uh, Hitler because you go back to 1920 in one of his first speeches and, and he makes it very clear that free speech is completely odious to him. And he wants to ban all kinds of ideas. So he has no interest in in free speech. But it gives him sort of the power of whataboutery and a facade, a veneer of legitimacy that he can use the laws that his political opponents had used against him.
0: If you enjoyed what you heard today and would like more thoughtful discussions of censorship and free speech, please consider becoming a member of Booksmart Studios. You'll get access to bonus segments, written columns, and special episodes. More importantly, you'll be supporting all the work we do here at Booksmart Studios. Don't forget to rate and share Banished on whichever platform you listen, and leave a comment so we know what you think. Our success here at Booksmart depends as much on you as on us. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Bolo. And I, as always... Ik Amna Khaled. Toedeloo.